So uh, I'm back. My name's Aaron Lolito. I'm here with Chris Vogt and uh, two contributors to January's issue number 12. So I'll kind of start with just a quick introduction. Um, you know me and Chris, if you've listened to previous roundtables, uh, and we have two newcomer, newcomer guests. So uh, I'll give it to you, uh, Rachel. Uh, hi, I'm Rachel Prusan. I am um, an artist, a fine artist. I, I paint using alcohol ink, pigment sticks, and uh, traditional oil paints. Um, and I am based out of good old New Jersey, right outside of New York City. And um, I have a piece called um, Shinrin Yoku in um, issue 12 of Wild Roof Journal. And I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Rachel. And Mary Beth. Hi, folks. I'm Mary Beth Holloman. I'm based in Anchorage, Alaska. I am a writer. I've published uh, creative nonfiction, and I have a book of poetry coming out in August from Red Hand Press. It'll be my first collection of poetry. And I have a poem um, in issue 12 called 52 that's going to be part of that uh, poetry collection next next summer. So I'm very excited about that. And I'm really excited to be here. Um, I think this is a really cool format. So thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you're welcome. Great to hear. Um, so yeah, exciting to have a cool collection coming out. So yeah, it's cool to have a, have a preview of a, one of the pieces in that collection in the issue. So that's um, uh, the poem 52 in Gallery 1 from issue 12. Poem is stunning, by the way. I really loved it. Thank you. <laughs> You know, I think we'll uh, we'll jump into one of our pieces that we'll discuss uh, today, and we'll start with the visual piece. We got a couple uh, a couple of prose pieces, maybe even a poem. Um, but the visual piece was from Jolene Armstrong. The title, "Sunflower Cosmos," and Rachel, that was one of your selections. So, yeah. really, um, like out of the out of the pieces in the issue. If you wouldn't mind just uh, throwing out there, like what made that one stand out to you? Sure. Um, taking your lead, obviously, it it was. I'm commenting strictly subjectively, you know, on um, the pieces I chose. But what spoke to me first was that I was sort of drawn into uh, the center of this very detailed piece, and my eyes visually, I got sort of lost. Uh, happily lost in the details of it. So uh, it, it actually took me, even though the title of the piece is Sunflower Cosmos, it took me a minute to realize I was actually looking at a sunflower um, because I was so lost in the beautiful sort of cellular, uh, molecular-like detail of the piece. I And I really, you know, it sort of reminded me of a, a lot of things. One is, you know, just an overall commentary on perspective, right? How, you know, we can get so lost in the details of our own, you know, lives that it's, you have to remind yourself to sort of step back and there's always another perspective, right? We're always looking through our own distorted lenses. 
um, the lenses of our experience or where we're standing or whatever. Um, and then it also um, reminded me of sort of how um, the detail is very organic and cellular looking and how the sort of the geometry and patterns are, you know, repeated in nature. And I know there must be a word for that. I just don't know what it is where you have like, you know, sort of like the irises of your eyes, the lines in the irises of your eyes also look like sort of branches of trees and things like that. This obviously reminded me of, um, you know, sort of a Milky Way kind of thing in space, right? Which is like, which uh, this alludes to the word cosmos in there. And also, like I said, cellular type shapes, molecular stuff, as if you're looking at things through a microscope. So um, yeah, off the top of my head, those are the initial, my initial thoughts. And then just visually the colors, I thought were just beautiful. Yeah, great. Anybody else want to throw uh, throw something in there with that piece? Yeah, you know, the phrase that came to me looking at it was the world in a grain of sand. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea of the, the micro and the macro being so similar, you know, like you pointed out, Rachel. And I think there, there probably is a word for that, similar forms mm -hmm. of nature, but I've always been fascinated by that. And uh <laughs> Because you can just you just see it everywhere and those repeated forms. And, you know, again, like you said, Rachel, I, too, started out looking because of the title too, Cosmos. I was looking at it as and all the pieces around it. There's so much in this issue and especially in that section having to do with stars and skies and that whole theme. And so at first, I, too, didn't even realize I was looking at a sunflower. <laughs> Yeah. But it was just gorgeous. And two, the cycles of, of life apparent in there because of the, the element of uh, apparent decay that may be going on with the sunflower at the same time, oh. that sense of mm -hmm. earth that comes in with the seeds and, and everything. Yeah, I thought it was a gorgeous piece. So thanks for picking that one out. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, again, it's, it is really validating to hear that you're seeing some of the same um stuff that I hadn't considered, of course, how the cycle of life stuff comes into play there and, of course, fits in with this part of the uh, journal. That's cool. When this, for the very first time I saw it, I had no idea what to expect. I wasn't even sure if it was going to be a visual piece or if it was going to be written text, so I had zero preconceived notions. And I have to admit, my very first gut reaction was a little creepy. I uh, got kind of an HR Geiger alien uh, feel, the little egg, you know, which of course gets you into a lot of sexual territory and yeah. also brings you back to birth and death and decay. Uh, yeah. I don't know why they let me do this, but I was like 23 or 24 and they let me teach an American literature class at a university in Texas that I had no right to be teaching at the time, <laughs> but I was obsessed with Walden at the time. And so I was, you know, trying to teach them bits and pieces of Walden. And one of the sections I got obsessed with because there was this implication of a mathematical expression in nature. And what I was able to pull out of it was the Fibonacci sequence or uh, the golden mean. So there's uh, the ratio of uh, you know where the eye occurs on a perfect face. It's the, this ratio then also gets expressed in the uh, sunflower. If you look at the mm -hmm. seeds, the, the outgrowth is the same two, five, one pattern. Uh, which is also what you see in the unspooling of galaxies. So now superimposing that, 
that actually makes this similar. It's still a little frightening to me. There's something kind of maybe a cosmic horror, I think, because I, that was my first reaction. It was almost a, a phobic response. Uh, but then you kind of superimpose the universal stuff that, that adds a nice layer where it's still a little creepy, but it's also kind of awesome and inspiring. It's still reminding you that stuff decays anyway. And I also like that it's kind of cut right in half. If you squint, the top half looks like it either might be growing or still in ah, flesh, but then the bottom half kind of is the almost circular pattern of uh, the yin-yang feel. Right, which also, it also reminds me, if I can add this, that it's, um, I, I had one of my um, my first art exhibition was called uh, Liminal Spaces and Nowhere Places. And I'm like obsessed with the concept of liminal space. And, you know, I feel like this issue of the journal, it feels very much like, you know, uh, reflective of liminal spaces. And yeah, I think that piece is sort of like, yeah, are you, is it, it's sort of, is it dying? Is it not, you know what I mean? It sort of feels like it's in transition. So it's cool. It's it's lovely and terrifying, as um, the artist Jolene Armstrong says herself, as describing her work. I didn't see like the yin yang similarity. It, it is you can't unsee it once you see it. Um, but yeah, the kind of the lighter side and the, and the darker side of the the you know the, the inner part of the flower. If you made it uh, you know far enough into the website, there's somewhere in there where. Uh, I reference uh, William Blake, um, not the famous, you know, uh, world in a grain of sand line, but uh, we're fans of William Blake in terms of the uh, the origin story of uh, Wild Roof Journal. That's where I uh, got the name originally. So, uh, yeah, that, that that element certainly isn't lost in terms of seeing, you know, the, the cosmos in this case in a flower rather than a grain of sand, uh, but similar enough where it's a nice parallel. You know that I was wrong on uh, on one of the pieces we talked about last go around with uh, Bonnie Math- Matthews Brock's image. Um, so I'll I'll t- give this one another shot, and perhaps I'll be wrong again. But it looks, I mean, it looks digitized. You know that the it's not a realistic image of a of a sunflower, of course. And I'll post it on the website if you're just listening. But that's that kind of cellular. And obviously the colorful nature of it um, kind of calls to mind like a kind of a digitized image where it's not um, not overdone, where it seems kind of fake and uh, too kind of harsh, uh, but kind of really done in a nice, really an interesting way that really is uh, pretty eye-catching. And what I was even drawn to after a couple of looks at it was kind of the edges and the pattern you know, the pattern in the, in the center obviously draws your eye in because the circular nature of it and the center of the flower, um, but just the wonderful patterns into the edges of the piece. Like every, you know, every part of this image is, is uh, just kind of gives you more and more to look at. So it kind of has that infinite nature working, you know, just in terms of places to look as a viewer. So I like that. Yeah, very organic looking, although possibly digitized looking, like you were saying, it doesn't lose that organic look and feel. Very organic. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, you know, a nice 
kind of connection. Actually, oddly enough, the piece right before this in the issue um, was selected by uh, Mary Beth to take a closer look at. And that was a friend of the podcast, Anna Genevieve Winham, um, her piece in Gallery One, which was called By Jove. So that might be a nice transition there. Um, so Mary Beth, if you wouldn't mind, what uh, stood out to you with uh, the piece By Jove? Well, there's so much that's interesting about this short piece. Um, but, well, the first thing that struck me was I had just had the great fortune of, of seeing the four moons of Jupiter really well for the first time in my life. And so when she started talking about Jupiter, I was just like, oh, yeah, because it was just so amazing. And then um, the sec second thing that struck me was her line about the father, Emma's father, wanting to name things, name the, the ships that went by in the channel or in the bay. And she said that most masculine of obsessions. Um, and I found that really fascinating, too, because I've thought a lot about why we name things. You know, as someone who, you know, sort of an amateur naturalist and knowing the names of animals and plants. And when I go to visit a place, I'm always wanting to know. But then I'm also thinking, why does why do I think that knowing the name of that flower tells me anything at all? <laughs> and um, so I've, I've written about that a little bit. I wrote this piece about oyster catchers years ago and in the heart of the sound, it's one of the chapters in that book where I, you know, there's these birds I hang out with a lot in Prince William Sound and just, you know, really knowing their names is like next to nothing. And, and even learning what you find out in a bird book or in a, a biology text, is still just scratching the surface. Like mainly you just need to hang out with them and continually remove your human filters as much as possible. So that really struck about this piece too and the sort of masculine feminine thing going on there in terms of how we relate to the world, um, how we think about intelligence, like what is knowledge? Um, so she, she also has a line, the way two different knowledges felt that she had had this, Emma had had this experience of knowing planets, but not until she actually saw them, you know, that different um, knowledge base opens up this idea of all the different knowledge bases that exist, not, not only within the human community, but, you know, even further than that. Um, and I also was reminded of a book that I read many years ago called The Names of Things. And it's kind of, not very well known. Susan Brind Morrow and the subtitle is A Passage in the Egyptian Desert. And so it's kind of a travel memoir about her time in Egypt. But she talks a lot about language. One, because she's trying to learn the Egyptian language, which is very different than English, but also because she's just thinking again about that question of what do the names of things mean? And how do we define that? So that was what really pulled me to this piece. <laughs> and then the other thing, kind of funny, but also related is the title, By Jove. For some reason, what popped into my head was that line from My Fair Lady, which is really by George instead of by Jove. But in my memory, it was by Jove. I think she's got it. You know, when, when, when and that story, if you remember, is about taking this poor English woman who doesn't speak proper English and trying to teach her proper English and proper ways of being. 
So going back to that idea of like, what is knowledge and how do we, basically, how do we think we know anything at all? <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I really like that. Uh, you kind of landed on that kind of question after reading it. I don't think I could articulate it um, better than Mary Beth did, but I think, uh, you know, definitely the male-female thing going on there, I, I felt very strongly. And I especially liked the part about, um, I'm looking at it to make sure I quote it properly, but the, the quote is, um, moons weren't the shy children of the planets, but rather the Oedipal sons trying always to escape their fathers, but being pulled into eternal return. Um, and then talking about also the moon being trying to free herself from the narcissistic clutches uh, or, yeah, from the controlling clutches of a narcissistic mom. So I thought, hmm, that gives us a lot to sort of think about. Um, again, um, I, seem to, I seem to be focused on like pieces and stories that are able to kind of shift your perspective on things in pretty big ways. And I thought that those are two very different perspectives you know, very close uh, proximity. I don't uh, want to push too hard with kind of drawing similarities, but we're, you know, I, what I liked about this in combination with the um, the previous image that we just looked at, Sunflower Cosmos, where it's kind of, kind of had the, the, the microscopic view and the, the cosmic view together. So we're thinking about the, the family unit, family dynamics, family interactions, that familiar territory there, but then also... Um, considering, you know, one's place in the larger cosmic perspective. So there is that dynamic going on there. And obviously there's a lot of talk about planets and, and space. And even, even the word cosmos is used uh, near the end or pretty close to the end of the piece, which, can you know, sometimes I just go for a literal approach of placement of what to place next to what. So that was a nice... Uh, a nice one and made it e made my job easy. I can just uh, cosmos, cosmos, put those together, and uh, what do you know? They actually do intersect with some pretty interesting themes, as it turns out. Well, and I, and I don't have it in front of me, so I can't remember the name of the indigenous peoples that she talks about in there. Anyhow, but that idea of traditional ecological knowledge is also important to you know think about in terms of what do we mean when we say. We know something. <laughs> and I love that their that their way of, of viewing things is that you can't say anything about it unless you're actually present. Like the line when Columbus discovered America. Well, were you actually there? Like, did you actually see that happen? I thought that was I thought that was brilliant and really a powerful um, addition to this, you know, uh, that layered piece. Yeah, that's really interesting. That just reminded me of um my husband years ago uh, published a book called um, uh, The Clumsiest People in Europe. And it's about um, this woman, Mrs. Mortimer. I mean, a real woman who existed. And she wrote about all the countries of the world without ever having left her tiny town in Wales. And so she, you know, she had all sorts of interesting ideas about, you know, the Portuguese and this and that. It was just very funny. And the, the text was used to teach children about the countries of the world um, at one time. So anyway, I just happened to think of good old Mrs. Mortimer when you were saying, and you had to have been there um, because Miss Mortimer <laughs> was never anywhere to talk about. Anyway, I digress. 
Yeah, nice. Yeah, maybe we'll take a turn into uh, the other pros piece, uh, which is nice. And then uh, it was uh, Rachel's other selection, Brent Atkinson's story, Red Eyes. Yes. Uh, so speaking of speaking of what was placed next to what, this was the one that uh, immediately preceded your image. Um, yes. So you'd but have, that's, uh, you'd, you'd have... just... <laughs> that's not. Okay, um, I'll I'll tell you why I did why I did choose it though. Um, and I'll say I, too, this was um, this was a longer piece, so it's one that you know if you're interested in it, you can sit down with it, and uh, it's more than just a poem or a flash piece. What kind of drew you in? Because this one was a little bit more of the a longer form, which we don't publish a lot. Yeah, it's longer form, but it's still um, it's still a short story, and I mean at least for me it is and um i am you know my attention span <laughs> i am certain i have undiagnosed ad add um my attention span short stories are perfect for me <laughs> sort of so i know it's a longer form for the journal but um anyway what i tend to be drawn toward first of all right away i was pulled into the sort of the atmosphere of this sort of cold not rural, but cold, um, like I just felt like I was there. I was pulled into the place immediately. I'm lacking the words to describe the, the place, but I was pulled there. And um, it's, you know, sometimes I imagine myself, despite having lived in New York City for 16 years and um, choosing to live in a town that just, you know, where you can get to the city very easily, um, I sort of long for uh, part of me really imagines or fantasizes about living in a place like that where you're just sort of, you're, you're just surrounded by nature, beautiful, you know, nature's beauty and um, your priorities shift and your, your tasks are different and your interactions with people are different and all of that. So right away I was pulled in to that place. Um, and then I found like a, a, so much interesting about that piece. The, the protagonist, um, and I'm forgetting the protagonist's name, um, but the protagonist is a young guy and he's living alone. And what I really uh, thought was interesting, and it reminded me of someone I, I know, is that he was taught early on, he said, not to to sort of trudge on with his work and to not feel, you know, pain, be it physical or uh, or or emotional, physical or emotional, to kind of like just brush it aside and carry on with your work, right? So that to me comes up. Uh, it, it was something. It's something I find very interesting, and it came up several times in the piece. Um, it's a theme that's repeated. So he cuts his hand. And then he had, and he didn't even notice that he cut his hand for a while. And he, it, it wasn't until he saw blood dripping in the snow, and then he continued on his merry way. And then he also is still sort of grappling with uh, the end of a relationship, and it seems, and he's doesn't seem like he wants to feel. Uh, he doesn't really, he's not able to process it because he doesn't want to feel any of these uncomfortable feelings that come can come along with the end of a relationship. Uh, sadness, regret, I don't know. I don't really know what else is going on in, in internally for him. So there's that. 
And that, to me, contrasted with the fact that he sits in front of this journal every night, right, to write about things. And and it's like he, he says he writes about, has thoughts and reflections, and he's staring at these pages, and he's not able to express anything because he can't get in touch with himself internally. And I thought, that's quite a chore. You're looking to, you're trying to write in a journal every night, and you are you've been taught to do everything other than look internally. So um, it seems that at one point he had been able to write in this journal because he had pages that were full in the past, but he can't do it right now. Um, And then I also really enjoyed the contrast of, like he had a, he seemed like a very sort of rigid routine, like very routine life, right? He got up, he had his cigarette, He, you know, did what he had to do. He walked, you know, to the, to the river, to the water, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's like, there's the rigidity of his life versus sort of like the wildness of what he's surrounded by nature, you know, nature. And I, I thought that was an interesting contrast too. So those are some of my initial thoughts. I mean, I think there's probably more to, there was an interaction that he has with um, a man who he had never seen, but he sees tracks in the snow. And it turns out he runs into this guy one day and the guy's a, a wolf hunter, it turns out. And I know there's something to that interaction that's also significant, but I haven't quite been able to process that or put that into words yet myself. But I really thought, to me, characters are... I'm more character focused when I like, I lo- I'm more interested in characters. If I had to pick between good characters and a good story line, I'm all about the character. And this character to me was someone I wanted to know more about. I actually felt like <clears throat> as a former clinical social worker, I wanted to kind of get in there. I wanted to help him um, get to know himself. You know, there's a word called interoception which means it's almost like a, another sense, right? Where you sense everything that's going on with yourself internally. How did that sense get blunted for him? And how can he sort of like resensitize himself to things that are going on with himself internally? Yeah, resensitize is huge. I love that you, you put a word to one of so many things that was flying through my brain when I encountered this. The first encounter was strange because immediately I'm looking for description. I'm looking for kind of uh, details and I didn't see him. And yet I got completely drawn into the world. Now, partly that's not fair because I'm bringing a lot of software preloaded from loving Jack Kerouac and going through my Hemingway period and Cormac McCarthy. So uh, a guy out in the wilderness, particularly in winter, I mean, that that's just calling in a whole bunch of preloaded software. But he, he really did it. He, he invoked something that was original, and I'm not quite sure how he did it because I'm looking for this high-definition description, but he was able to create that atmosphere in pretty high-definition anyway, which made it more atmospheric, I think. And, of course, you got a mystery factor. So if you got uh, some footprints, we don't know where they're going. We're not really sure what he's thinking. And I'm always hypercritical if it looks a little bit like Hemingway because... I went through this phase. I didn't originate this term. I think it was George Saunders that says every male author has to 
outgrow his Hemingway boner, where he wants to write like Hemingway, wants to be like Hemingway. And it's just going to have to kind of go through that process and then come out the other side. Um, very few authors, it seems like, are able to kind of stay within that minimalist, man against nature, very internal, very psychological. But you've got a male character who clearly wants to have the introspective thoughts or be sensitized, um, but he's in this isolated uh, situation where he's trapped with himself. And I could kind of feel it coming, but it still made perfect intuitive sense. He's trapped with himself. He can't quite articulate. The resensitization isn't happening. So, of course, the rye whiskey that's in the writer's desk sends him out into the wilderness in his underwear. Uh, that was a scene where I kind of nodded and said, it could have been predictable if I saw it in a movie. I'd say, oh, that's, that's the scene that should happen now. That's the right beat. But it was still completely authentic. It still felt real, even though... The, the, the move, the arc, the story arc felt familiar, which I think was more to serve the character rather than the plot. That's why I think it worked for me. Agreed. Well said. <laughs> so, so I thought of Jack London and the Call of the Wild because the character's name, name is Jack, right? So yeah, a lot of preloaded stuff uh, for me too. And I, um, I've written a lot about wolves. I wrote a book called Among Wolves with a biologist who studied wolves for 40 years in Alaska. And so whenever I see a wolf in a story, I kind of, I put my guard up because there's so much misinformation about them. And, you know, it's a, and it's a real struggle because we have so many cliches in literature, like, you know, the lone wolf and, you know, what, what, Dr. Haber found out is that a lone wolf is basically a dead wolf. They cannot really survive on their own. They're, they're pack animals, they're community animals, kind of like humans. Um, and so, so I, um, so I always come at things that way. And then of course the wolf hunter, will. I won't even talk about that, but, <laughs> but except to say, I wasn't really quite sure. The wolf hunter seemed to be this character that was both appeared to be sort of you know, wanted to make sure this dude was okay by saying, you know, take care of yourself. But then he also seemed to be a dangerous character, which is more how I interpreted it, that sometimes, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but one of the, my takeaways from it was, you know, sometimes when you're out in the wild, that still the most dangerous animal out there is a human. <laughs> and um, like, I remember reading something years ago about um, women who hike by themselves and their biggest fear is running into, you know, a, another human that might harm them, not a bear or a wolf or, you know, Wolverine or, you know, cougar. It's just not. And so it's, it's, that was one of the things that I drew from the story. But again, basically, I think, Rachel, what you were saying is that it's as much about the the other thing that we confront when we're alone in the wilderness is ourselves. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, you know, confronting ourselves is the most terrifying of all, right? <laughs> because then we have to look at ourselves. And like you pointed out, Rachel, this is a character who doesn't, you know, really, he's not in touch with his himself. So, um, yeah, I thought it was an interesting piece. Thanks for bringing it up, Rachel. Aaron, your sound might be going wonky again. It was staticky, and right now I think no audio from your end. Check, check, one, two. And now we have our intermission, so 
<laughs> to move about the cabin. <laughs> Where's the uh, the music <laughs> for the event? Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Find the most annoying phone hold music possible. <laughs> well, Rachel, I'll take this interruption to um, tell you how much I appreciated your piece in this uh, issue, too. It's really gorgeous. Thanks. Thank you so much. It's very evocative. Is it, a, is it oil? It is um, alcohol ink and pigment stick, which is you oh. know oil, oil paint mixed with just enough wax to be in a solid form so yeah I tend to um paint a lot of I, I I never know what I'm creating when I start painting and um I end up creating a lot of sort of dreamy looking landscapes and um places that I imagine are a lot like where Jack <laughs> where Jack was because um, I think I, either I was there I was I was living that way in another life or maybe that's really where I belong. <laughs> but thank you for the kind words. That it, it means a lot. It's not external validation is not why anybody creates art, but it really does feel good um, when it resonates with someone. So thanks for telling me. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, Mary Beth's final selection, the poem for the American Robin. John Hansen was the poet. Yeah. So um, this one. I, I, it just really got me because um, he's using very plain language. You know, it's very straightforward. It's, I think, a, a poem that anyone, even people who say, I don't understand poetry, could understand. And I always appreciate that um, because we do want poetry to be read by more people. Um, and so it's very plain language, and 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 the robin too is a very common bird. I mean, it's a one of the most ubiquitous species in this con on this continent, and there are corollaries in Europe too, um, robins. And so I liked those two things about it, and and also it was just very heartfelt, and this idea that nowhere is unoccupied or vacant. I think is is more important now than ever that you know I think we're we're learning that that everyone everywhere is someone's home you know like the more we learn about uh ecology the more we learn about places even the deep sea vents of the ocean like everywhere there's somebody living there not a place that's unoccupied or vacant or desolate or um you know some of these words that we throw at places where at first glance looks like nobody's there and we can do what we want with them. <laughs> so, so I really liked that theme in this poem and that he focused on a single incident. You know, he didn't do what I just did was his big, broad, vague stroke. He focused on a single bird and a single incident of a single little bit of land getting developed and to illustrate this larger idea. And I think he did a really good idea. And it kind of resonated with that other essay. I can't remember the name of it now, just where he talks about um, bird watching and he says, well, that's just a so-and-so. And then he ends the essay with, uh, where is it? The name of it is Just Gone By. That's the name of the essay, also in this issue. And I like that, that idea too, that you know, it's not just a field or just a robin. 
you know, the way we use that word just to kind of be dismissive and say, ah, it doesn't matter. So anyhow, for those reasons, I, I really appreciate this poem. 